0: Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, Courtney's going to tell us about everyone's favorite water bear, tardigrades. Then, I will take you to Montauk Point, where for over a decade, an underground facility experimented with time travel, kidnapped people, and produced child psychic soldiers. Allegedly. Content warning, expect foul language, but for Montauk, expect a lot more. This is a very expansive conspiracy theory that involves pretty much every conspiracy theory known to man, and thus includes some disturbing subjects from human experiments to child kidnappings, so listen with care. Let's get ready for another human exception.
1: Craig. We're now a book and not a podcast. We're now, We're now a, a book.
2: We're not well a podcast. Cat is. Mara.
3: Well, get your butt up here, cat. She's so mad again. Okay, bye. <laughs> Welcome back to the human exception. That was thing threw me
0: off. Yeah. You hey, Tell safe. us about tardigrades. <laughs> oh, am I going first? Uh, probably a good idea. Like get the um sane topics out of the way first before I break <laughs> your brains. <All>
1: right.
0: <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> I wasn't expecting to go first and I'm I'm a little on the spot now. I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um so yeah, I'm gonna talk about Tardigrades. Um they've become really popular in pop culture like in the last seven years, which I thought was kind of strange. Like 2015 all of a sudden they were in a bunch of popular media people I know a guy with like a tardigrade too um and they became like a little mascot everybody thought they were really cute and then they heard that they could survive in space and lost their shit and so there's a lot of like gentle misinformation about them like it's not like straight up detrimental to society or anything it's not like please flush your your goldfish down the toilet if you don't want it anymore but <laughs> um it's also not right and that bothers me so we're gonna talk about it so uh tardigrades are also known as moss piglets um or water bears they're really cute if you can see them, um, and they are an animal, so they have their own phyla, so the way that we break down taxonomy in western science, it goes kingdom, um, which is either plant, animal, or bacteria, and then you have different phyla, and so tardigrade have their own, like, phyla to themselves, um, unlike, um, an arthropod or something where you have like so many arthropods or insects and crustaceans and anything with like a hard exoskeleton like that. Um, So there are about 1300 species of tardigrades and their name is Latin for slow stepper um, because they have like this funny little, they call it a walk, but they're not really walking. They have this funny little gait when they're moving around. Um, And they have little tiny feet with little tiny claws or little tiny flippers, pads, depending on the species. Um, And I actually took a photo of one with a scanning electron microscope. And I'll share that in
3: the chat. We'll put it in the thing. You know, the thing. Thing. It's not the best photo, and I wish I had
1: a better photo of the tardigrade, but um, I ran out of microscope time. Because you Fair. have to like you know, you're doing this within the session of a of a class or like outside of class and you have to sign out the time for the the scope. So it was the best photo I could get in my my time. Is that a foot? Blue. That's a foot with the claws. <laughs> it's got claws um, on
0: claws on claws.
1: Claws on claws, right? They look they have like little, they almost remind me of like an up close photo of a velcro with the claw. <laughs> they have like two Two big claws and little tiny claws coming off of it on their little foot. Um, but some of them apparently have uh, little like pads on them that they use instead. Um, they mostly use them to kind of like rip and pull themselves along if they're like on a piece of moss or algae or something. It, um,
4: looks, it, it
1: looks what? Salty. That one, <laughs> so. <laughs> So, part of the so when you look at the photo, like it does have like a bunch of little like round dotty things on it. Um, So, these are like you have to in order to use a scanning electron microscope with a specimen, um, it has to be dead uh, because it can't survive the process of being scanned because you have to desiccate them so you dry them out with different compounds depending on the species that you have and what you're trying to do. Um, there's like a handbook for that. Um, these chemicals are very dangerous in general um, and can like cause cancer so it's definitely not something that just a layperson can do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you have to coat it either with gold or platinum.
3: Damn. Um, fancy Antitagrids.
1: Yeah. So yeah, so, um, and that's that's true for anything that you're doing with the scanning electron microscope, from my understanding when I went to school. Um, and I did share in the chat, like a picture of me plating some kind of tube feet from a different experiment that I was doing. Um, so like the last slide in that Instagram post shows the two tube feet desiccated, but not like plated yet. Um, and then once they're plated, you put them in the scanning electron microscope and hope you did everything right. Cause you can't really see what you're doing um, because you're working with tiny, tiny things. Um, like for instance, I think the tube feet, I think I zoomed into like hundred nanometers per like bar. Like I, I can post a picture so people can see like, it's small. Just trust me. It's really small. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll talk more about how small tardigrades are in a second. Um, so the name Water Bear uh, was given to them by Johann August Ephraim Goes, who discovered them, or was credited with discovering them in 1773. And he called them Kleiner Wasserbär, which means little water bear.
0: And
1: we have to microscopes
0: cold. that good back then?
1: Okay, so you can see some tardigrades with, um, with a regular light microscope. But to get like good photos, like to get good up close pictures of like their little face and to give them some kind of like shape, you kind of have to do a scanning electron microscope. Um are translucent. So when you look at them, I have a video for you guys too. Um when you, you know look they were at translucent. them translucent, that's cool. I know that either. So they're see through and they're they're kind of hard to see. So like if you're if you're trying to like look at them and describe them, it's kind of hard unless you're like super dedicated. Um, And I'm not going to say that I'm not dedicated, but I'm not necessarily (laughs) dedicated to water bears. I think they're very cute, um, but like, they're not, they're not my animal. They're not my jam. Um, I did have a uh, classmate at Evergreen, Johnny, who was like fantastic. She's wonderful. And she actually, I think was, I think she's been credited on a paper. For tardigrades,
5: so,
1: were like what's nice. going to be published because of the work that she had done and like the contributions that she had made. If she didn't, wasn't publishing her own paper, um, but I don't, I don't exactly remember because this was like a while ago and I haven't talked to her in forever. Um, but yeah, so like tardigrades are you can see you can't see with your naked eye, like, but you can you can see them easily under a microscope, but better under a scanning electron microscope, especially if you want like the tiny details.
0: I don't think I've ever seen a video of one actually moving and, like, the spikers going. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I have I've been able to see one under a, a light microscope where they're actually alive and moving around. Um, they're pretty cool. Um, you can find them, I don't want to say easily, but, like, I guess, like, our class is pretty lucky, but, like, they're very tiny, and they live everywhere, so. <laughs>
5: um
1: So the reason why uh goes called them a water bear, or like Germans now also call them, and I'm gonna say this terribly, Barschen, which means little bear animal, and that's because they look like little bears when they walk, because you know bears have that like swag. I'm (laughs) shaking my butt. You guys can't see that like waddle. (laughs) That waddle, yeah. That like back. the tardigrades kind of have the same thing when they're kind of like lumbering over things. Um, Like I said before, they're translucent. They have four segments. Each segment has two legs, so they have eight legs. Um, And they have little claws or little pads on each legs. And they have funny little faces um, that have, like,
3: a suction cup-looking face. Like, they look really funny. Um, (laughs) They don't
1: have true eyes. They have eye spots, which consist of, like, Five each eye consists of five or ten um, light cells that can like detect light. So like their ability to see isn't as sophisticated as some other creatures.
4: He's hmm. also like in a sumo suit.
1: Yes, they do. They look like they're in a sumo suit. Um, <laughs> part of that is because they've been—they're like dead and desiccated um so like they kind of fold in a little bit they probably be a little plumper like you see in the video um because in the in the pictures you see where they look like you know macro animals larger animals they they're those are scanning electron photos for sure
5: um
1: and their mouths are terrifying um up close there's a there's a picture of them and they just have like these little radula looking deals Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, <laughs> really cool. and, and yeah, they're pretty neat. Um, so they, on average, are half a millim no, point zero five millimeters long.
2: Oh my goodness!
1: Which is half of the size, so half of one 12 point font period. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> they're teeny, teeny fucking tiny. Uh, and the largest species is 1.2 one point two millimeters long, which you could probably see with your eye, but it's not going to be like pleasant. Like it's not very big at all.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like a moving speck
3: of dust. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, so they reproduce uh, two different ways. They either do parthogenesis, which is where um, the females give birth without having sex. Um, They don't give birth, though. They lay eggs. So I don't know why I said that. I think because I'm thinking of sharks. Um. (laughs) So they lay eggs without having sex. So um, they just, like, decide one day that they're going to make some babies. And they have babies. And if you think about it, if you are 0.05 millimeters long, living in our planet fucking Earth, how long is it going to take you to find a mate? That's got to be ridiculous. Um, so yeah, that, that being a, a, reproduction strategy is pretty important. Um, and they also do have sex. Some of them have sex with internal fertilization and then lay eggs and then some of them have lay eggs and then have external fertilization. Um, the eggs have a lot of similar characteristics in appearance in that they have some pretty amazing survival strategies that we'll talk about in a bit. Um, and they typically hatch after about two weeks. Babies. Um, So, tardigrades, what do they eat? Some of them eat plants. So, they have little stylets. That's those creepy looking beaks that they've got. And they'll pierce a plant cell and suck out the organelles from within the plant cell. Um, And then some of them are predators and do eat um, microscopic invertebrates called rotifers. Um, If I'm getting any of this wrong and Johnny's listening, I'm so sorry. (laughs) <laughs> like, like I said, like I like them. They're interesting, but they're they're definitely a little out of my wheelhouse. Um, and then tardigrades are eaten by amoebas, nematodes, and sometimes other tardigrades. Um, one of the most specialist things about tardigrades is that they are found in every biosphere on Earth. Yes, that includes deserts, tundra, freshwater, saltwater, ice, snow, soil, leaf litter, hot springs, mountaintops, tops. Um, they've been found on the top of the Himalayas. Wow. Yeah. So as long as they can get some moisture and kind of have something to eat, they're happy. And and things like rotifers are Um, They're often found on lo- lichen, which is why they're called moss piglets. <laughs> <laughs>
5: um,
1: Love it. So what about surviving space thing that we hear about all the time in pop culture and pseudoscience magazine articles? Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, tardigrades aren't actually like alive in a vacuum. Um, if you took a live tardigrade and you stuck it in a vacuum out of nowhere, it, it probably wouldn't survive. But tardigrades have this suspended state that they go into that's called a tuned state or a ton state. Um And so they curl up into a little ball or they with- withdraw their body as much as they can into their cuticle, their outer shell and they drop their metabolism um, to like 0.1% of the normal metabolism rate. Um, And then that lets them survive through some pretty intense um, conditions. So this includes things like boiling them in alcohol. Um, They can live um, 30 years at negative 20 degrees Celsius. They can live a couple days at negative 200 degrees Celsius. Um, and they've even been shown to live at um, negative 220 or sorry, 272 degrees Celsius for a couple of minutes, um, which is the same as one Kelvin, which is almost absolute zero. Um, there's there's nothing that can live at that temperature. Yes,
4: that's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, um, there are some studies that they've done more recently, uh, like in the last um like a couple of years, that say that after forty-eight hours at ninety-eight degrees, if they're not acclimatized to being in a high heat environment, that they they won't survive that. Um, but in general, they can serve they can survive a lot. Um, in the tundra state, they can also uh, withstand vacuums and high pressures, like um, twelve hundred times regular atmospheric pressure. So that's really really high. Um, they are found they're found at the ocean bottom so like that's that's a lot of pressure (laughs) Mm -hmm. um they can also some species have also been found to um withstand six thousand atmospheres of pressure
3: which is six times the pressure of the water um at the deepest part of the mariana trench so uh
1: they can also survive impacts of up to 900 meters per second um, they can live in a dry state for somewhere between 10 and 30 years. Um, so some of them, what they do is, so they're in this tuned state and then they kind of like, if they're only dealing with dehydration, they just kind of like rehydrate and then will like go back to being a little, a little animal running around. Um, it's harder if they're like completely frozen. Um, because sometimes, like, they're not a very complicated animal. I can, I, I'll post some pictures for my textbook. Um, they're kind of like a a sack of water with some organs in it. So, like, they're a sack of water in the shape of a bear with, like, <laughs> ovaries. And they have a mouth hole and a bow hole and a tummy. And that's about as complicated. And they do have, like, a, uh, it's not a true
3: brain. It's a, what's it called? Looking at the textbook because I can't remember the word. That's why we have references. (laughs) Never let anyone shame you for looking something up.
1: Legit. Unless you you can't find it and then maybe you need to rethink your life. (laughs) (sighs) Like I am right now. Where's the thing about the brain? It's not a true brain. It's a... Cerebral ganglion, which I think just means like, is just fancy for head head nerve. So not very complicated. Um. So ice can, t- can can potentially damage their tissues, and that could just like spell death for the little guys. Um. They have been found to withstand um radiation that's a thousand
3: times like more intense than other animals can withstand. Um, Radiation
1: is something I don't highly, highly understand that gets into physics and I I can't physics very well. Um, But yeah, they they can um, withstand that radiation and then they have an ability to repair their DNA uh, that's been damaged from radiation exposure. Um, And this also goes for their eggs, although like if they've been highly highly radiated for a long time the eggs can't like withstand that and it also depends on how developed they are if they're like a, a new baby egg and they get irradiated they're they're not gonna not gonna withstand that. <laughs> and then there's also some some results um some lab lab tests that have shown that they can also um deal with environmental toxins but that really hasn't been replicated since 2001. And I was looking around and I couldn't
3: find any other supporting um, articles, research papers on it. So um,
1: it's still still being found. But, like, pretty much anything you throw at these guys, they can resist. So, like, when people are like, oh, cockroaches are going to take over the world after we have a nuclear war. Like, no, they're not. It's going to be a world of cartergrades. We're going to be keeping the water <laughs> beast up in here.
0: Just giant tardigrades.
1: Giant fucking tardigrades everywhere. Could you imagine? Like they couldn't actually be giant because if they were giant, like they would just collapse because they have so <laughs> <still> nothing. <laughs> but they can they can they can list will be there'll be a ton of tiny microscopic tardigrades everywhere just doing their thing like they've been doing for the last like I don't know the true dominant years, species like on the planet million years. yeah so they were around um during the cretaceous period too i think is when the first tardigrades yeah when the first tardigrade like modern tardigrades were found and then they they had ancestors dating back to like two hundred million years ago so yes. um yeah again like, paleo paleobiology is not my jam i don't know much about it but like thought that was pretty cool um yeah, and then they are the only animal that has been sent to space and then being then revived after being exposed to the cold, dark, vacuum-radiated hell of space. Um, and there was a mission that was sent out in 2019, which I also think kind of caused a lot of, like, tardigrade bruh ha ha um, ha ha where they were going to send um, tardigrades in the Toon State to the moon to see what it- Which I personally think is a terrible idea um, For many reasons Uh, But the rocket crashed And in 2021 the scientists Said that the tardigrades were probably all dead So The rocket crashed? That's like the saddest thing I've ever heard Yeah, the rocket crashed, all the tardigrades died Um, No Probably But also, like, please don't send Like, for me i'm like don't send things into space that don't already belong in space like you could i don't know like i guess you could argue like we're part of space and whatever but like it's like releasing your fucking lionfish into the pacific ocean don't do that don't do it yeah all the oceans are connected and they're technically all one big ocean and shut your mouth don't do that I just feel like we're asking for trouble. Like, also, what if we messed up like a a a xenobiological Mm. like ecosystem or something? That's the only reason why I get interested in space is when we talk about animals. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Um, I know that Orson Scott Card is a terrible person, but I really enjoyed his um, "Speaker for the Dead." series where he talks a lot about xenobiology and like human interactions with alien species uh,
4: that was. But then it I was remember very
1: it's so good but he is such a terrible fucking person yeah. also when you remember that he's Mormon it really changes a lot of the way that things come across I think <laughs> um, mm-hmm. yep
2: people forget that about Brandon Sanderson too yeah so pirate
1: books so you don't have to give him money I say that allegedly, as a <laughs> joke. Um, but they are really good. Yeah. So um, I think that's all I had about hard If You guys had questions. My brain is, you know, they're awesome. They're yeah. Cute. Um, I I really enjoyed Mulholland and Kipo and the Wonder Beast. Um. He's one of my favorites, even though I think they gave him six legs instead of eight. I'll let <laughs> it slide. <laughs> Pretty cool, and you can you can. There are websites if you look up tardigrades, and I can also link them in the show notes, um, where you can find them yourself if you have a microscope, um, mm. and like how to how to how to look for them if you're in a terrestrial environment. Um, which is most people, although I think the ones that I've seen have all been marine. Um, so they might be slightly different. But yeah, it's pretty it's pretty cool.
3: Dope. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I learned a lot about target that I didn't know. Um, <laughs> I know. Mm-hmm. Oh good. Right? That's awesome. I didn't know they're transparent. It's wild. I Yeah! I mean, they're so
1: small. What did they need non-transparency for? It? That makes sense.
3: <laughs> like a, so that they were like a around of the things. dinosaurs.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and a lot yeah. of things when they're that small are are transparent. Even if they have like, like these guys have a cuticle or like, um, <laughs> baby barnacles and other baby <laughs> crustaceans are also transparent when you look at them under a microscope, a light microscope. Um, there's just like why why waste that energy on creating something that's not really going to be helpful for you. And if you think about it, if you're that small, like being in, being
3: see through is um an advantage. Yeah. So that's so cool. That's so yeah. cool. Right. Oh, here's
1: here's a good thing. So um, for X-rays, it says that they can live through a thousand times the lethal human dose of X-ray. Holy shit. So like I have to wear a little a little baby lead apron if I go get a a scan, but these guys,
3: they're like radiation. Fun.
1: What? Right?
3: That yeah. So they get radiation
1: can... <laughs> for breakfast.
3: <laughs> yeah. Right. So um,
1: yeah, I think it also it's really important to show that you don't have to be a quote unquote advanced uh, animal. I'd be like super smart to live through shit. Sometimes <laughs> you just gotta be tough as
3: balls. <laughs> Love it! Great. All right, I guess it's time for Montauk. Oh
4: <laughs> right. God! Here These we go. Gonna be a trip.
3: Is ready for
2: this. Ooh! This is a thing. No, but yes.
0: <laughs> so this has no. been my life for like the last two months. <laughs> um, oh my it's God. Been a whole thing. It's, 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 yeah, it's so much. So, yeah, Montauk. So, once a military base, much of Camp Hero today is a state park loaded, located on Montauk Point, New York. But between January 1971 and August 12, 1983, in an underground facility, it was home to a full bingo card of conspiracy theories from aliens to mind control to psychic child soldiers and even time travel supported by none other than the military.
1: We I'm know. Sorry, did you did you just say psychic child soldier? Oh yes.
3: <laughs> yes.
1: Oh okay. <laughs> That's what we're doing today. Ah.
0: Uh, so a bunch of white dudes in the eighties realized that they've forgotten a decade or more of their life. But don't worry, they've remembered those things now and they're gonna tell us all about it.
4: I think oh, it was no. just the seventies that they forgot. Like really <laughs>
0: Oh, no the eighties is no, it. <laughs> not white
1: men. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: um, I put together a handy little guide for you guys because this is fucking bonkers. Let me grab it here.
2: You have like a full on timeline for us. Oh my god. Oh, a fucking a basic one. Oh my um, god. Cause
0: there's a lot of stuff I could have added in there, but
2: this is just these are the
0: important things. <laughs> so there's a timeline. Oh, you got boy. pictures of the dudes and their names. So.
3: These are the oh six man guys
0: we're going to be talking about a lot.
3: Ed Cameron, yes. They all look like <laughs> they all
2: somebody school all look like... like elementary school principal.
5: Yeah. Of them, yes, but
2: also
1: they look like they like look like the kind of guys who would be like.
3: For about Ten years in the seventies, it must be a conspiracy.
0: <laughs> you want to say that Chris Garitano at the end is not one of these guys. He's just a documentarian that's done a lot of research into this, so you can see where he's okay. actually saying under his name.
1: Actually saying, I like that. I like that. <laughs> Peter Moon. Right. Oh, what a name!
0: Oh man, Peter Moon's a piece of work. Um, <laughs> they're all they're all something. Um, so yeah, I my talk. Um, it's a town whose list of conspiracy theories and legends is longer than its phone book, spends most of the year sparsely populated. Big vacation homes line the beach, all empty, waiting for the wealthy New Yorkers to return in the summer. Full-time residents of Montauk counted a little over 3,000. Its primary trades are fishing and tourism, which they get a lot of both fish and tourists. But just outside of Montauk is what remains a camp hero, a strategic military foothold with roots all the way back to the Revolutionary War. In 1942, the U.S. commissioned... The the U.S. Army commissioned the construction of Camp Hero, also known as the Montauk Air Force Station. All part of America's coastal defense strategy, if the Nazis ever made it over the pond. It was well disguised as a small fishing village. This camouflage, one of the many reasons it's viewed suspiciously. But really, the best defense is a defense that your enemy doesn't know exists. So by the mid-80s, I guess the government realized that they're probably pretty safe from the Nazis. and The bulk of the land was donated to the National Park Service and the base itself was decommissioned. Through the 80s and 90s, not much happened with the land until September 18, 2002, when it was opened as Camp Hero State Park. Some parts of the park remain closed off and guarded, especially the areas near the old satellite installations, but for the most part, it's hard to imagine that anything horrific, horrific and terrible had happened here. According to a handful of people, it did. So, if you're not familiar with Montauk, um, it's really beautiful. It's like a super quaint beachside town with like... Gorgeous little lighthouse. I'll
3: show you a picture. You're famous for. Oh, wow. Oh, well, that is pretty. Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, the area
0: is fucking gorgeous. Um, yeah, like I said, it's it's a tiny fucking town that most of the year is empty. So it's like, if you live in Canada, um, it's kind of like, or Luis Coast, it's kind of like Tofino, where it's just like, summer is flooded with tourists like rich people and then the rest of the year it's just kind of just the
3: locals fishing and doing their thing pretty standard for most like tourist attraction towns though yes for sure
1: So,
0: yeah, when I was trying to read about this theory from second and third-hand sources, it kind of left my head wriggling. Every article seemed to tackle some different aspect of the theory, and none of them provided a clear timeline of events in any fashion. Stories about secret government experiments in the Montauk area have apparently been circulating since the early 1980s, but wouldn't reach the public consciousness until a 1992 publication. I gave up and grabbed myself a copy of the 25th anniversary edition of the Montauk Project Experiments in Time. So yeah, this book is written by Preston Nichols and Peter Moon. Um, And the story told within is about secret experience allegedly carried out at Camp Hero, known as the Martov Project. So the primary areas of interest for this project were military experiments in the field such as time travel, teleportation, contact with extraterrestrial life, and staging fake Apollo moon landings. Yes. So... In the book, Nichols claims that he recovered a slew of repressed memories about his role in the project. After this book was published, more people would come forward claiming similar recovered memories. The book became really popular among conspiracy theorists and spawned several sequels and since inspired a plethora of other books, movies, and TV shows. If any of this sounds familiar, this is also the source of inspiration for the Stranger Things. Okay. (laughs) So, where is the line between fact and fiction? Is there even one? This is how the book opens. Because the subject matter of this book is controversial, we would like to offer some guidelines. Some of the data that you will read in this book can be considered as soft facts. Soft, soft facts. I about
2: spit my so wine out. That's not true. true.
0: <laughs> soft <laughs> facts are not untrue. They are just not backed up by irrefutable documentation. And hard facts oh would be with documentation or hard physical evidence that could stand up to scrutiny.
3: Okay. The, so is this like name?
1: when people are like, uh, gravity is not a law. Is that what mm. he's trying to be like?
2: <laughs> but we know gravity is true.
3: That's some flat so, earther shit right
2: there.
0: So yeah. <laughs> oh. So, by the nature of the subject oh. matter and security considerations, hard facts about the Montauk project have been very difficult to obtain. This work is presented as nonfiction as it contains no falsehoods to the best knowledge of the authors. However, it can be read as pure science fiction if that is more suitable to the reader.
2: Amazing. Yeah. Amazing.
0: Yeah, this is how it starts. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. um, so that, that's Preston Nichols' introdu- introduction. Uh, Peter Moon also writes kind of a paragraph underneath, and this is that. It says, Preston Nichols has always tried to avoid hard facts as stated above, not because they do not exist, but rather because, per his statement, he's afraid to prove the Montauk project for fear of his life. While I believe his fears are passé to the time that has passed since his employment in the defense industry, it does not behoove myself nor anyone else to overlook the trauma he experienced and
3: how this might affect his decision-making. Uh-huh. I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, this book is the heart and origins of this conspiracy
0: theory, and this is where it all comes from. That's how it starts. I feel like I don't need
1: to say this, but this is gonna be a fucking wild ride. Ooh boy! Hey, I need some Bailey's in my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> just, now is the time. Maybe, if you want
3: to go cram? Maybe yep.
1: some Jameson. I'm gonna. I'm, I am gonna go top of my coffee. Then and, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll good call. <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> I am telling you, when
2: I was it's listening today, pretty. that that q episode. Um, last night, and they just touched on some of this. I was sitting there the entire time, transfixed, and all I could think was, "Kayla's gonna have some serious fucking dirt on all of this." <laughs> oh my god, that <laughs> was amazing. Oh,
3: oh, it's it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's so wild.
2: <laughs> it's just so. I oh my gosh.
0: Like this book was published in nineteen eighty two. Like this is. Mm-hmm. Three years ago. There's lots of time for this stuff to grow. <laughs> and I, get completely right. out of fucking
3: hand. And it already was to begin with. <laughs> yeah, some of these characters, holy shit. Hmm.
0: <laughs> Gives us a good insight into like some of what these really like staunch proponents of conspiracy theories are actually like. These oh, are the people sure. you're buying into right be aware
2: of that (laughs) this is the suspension of of reality that you are subscribing to it's it's really it says a lot about um you know the psychology behind the way we think and and how easy it is to to warp somebody's beliefs yeah for sure Especially if they're in a vulnerable position or, yeah. On a lot of
1: LSD.
3: (laughs) That too.
4: (laughs) Well, they, what is it that they mention? like people who are in abusive relationships and whatnot, um, it doesn't take very long for a person to continue to hear something negative about themselves for them to believe it. And it's probably even, and it takes even less time for a person who already thinks Certain things about themselves or about a certain topic to just start believing it. If there is even a little bit of anything to sort of back up what they think is true, right? Mm
3: -hmm. Everybody's Everybody's looking for answers. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
1: Like if you hear it enough, like eventually you you either believe it or you lose your mind. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. So. Where we start is the year 1971. Esther Nichols has started a new job at a company known as AL, Airborne Airborne Instruments Laboratory. Um, Nichols claims that he was a down-to-earth man, an electrical engineer with a specialty in electromagnetic phenomena. Very little interest in the paranormal. Seems pretty normal. But on the side, he'd been given a grant to study telepathy. The study was intended to prove its existence, but Nichols took as an opportunity to disprove it, which he failed to do. This was pretty straightforward. Collaborating with a handful of purported psychics, performing tests and recording their responses. Everybody needs a hobby. Do your thing.
1: Scientifically, like you don't set up an experiment to disprove something.
0: But this is how he's telling you that he's a skeptic, and this you've got to understand
1: that. I I know, but I also want to Believe in any of this. (laughs) I just want to say that, like, scientifically, when you go to set up an experiment, you don't go, you don't set out to prove or disprove something. You have a theory, but like. it's really hard to disprove something you can't prove a negative (laughs) sorry just semantics but it bothered me well there's gonna be a lot of
0: things that bother you that people claim a
1: scientific method in here take a drink every time (laughs) so Courtney had no (laughs) liver
0: three years later 1974 Nichols discovers that every day the same hour for 20 minutes all the psychics he works with would experience some sort of mind jamming preventing them from thinking effectively Nichols suspected electrical <laughs> interference, so he took some radio equipment and attempted to trace the signal. He acted back to a radar antenna located on a nearby military base known as Camp Hero. He tried to investigate it, but security wouldn't let him on site. With no access to the broadcast point, Nichols was forced to forget about the strange phenomenon for the next 10 years. <laughs> uh, so, 1984, 10 years later, Nichols gets words that Camp Hero has been abandoned and sees an opportunity, with Brian, one of his psychic subjects, Sneak onto what remains of the base. Debris and papers are scattered everywhere as if the place had been abandoned in a rush. I come across what looks like a homeless man who tells them that he'd been living there since the base had been abandoned the previous year. He went on to say that there had been a big experiment that went haywire, which is what caused the base to get abandoned. It was far fetched as was, but the man then went on to say that he had been a technician at the base and that Nichols had been his boss said that Nichols and many of the other scientists had fled the base when a beast had appeared on the base in the culminating event that would cause it to get shut down. described a myriad of experiments and studies that the base had been involved in, weather management to mind control. Nichols didn't believe any of this.
1: Well, yeah, because it's bullshit. (laughs)
0: Well, a few weeks later, Nichols was working in his personal lab at the back of his home, and a stranger barges in, claims that he knew Nichols and that he'd been this man's boss mentioned a lot of the same things that the homeless man had, including that it snowed in the middle of August, and hurricane winds, storms, and hail and lightning coming from out of nowhere. He also talked about strange animal behavior, where wild animals would come into town en masse, sometimes crashing through windows. Nichols decided to talk to the chief of police about these strange events only confirmed them and even talked about a strange period of time where crimes were only committed in a two-hour window every day. And also during the time, also during the time, teenagers would reportedly get together in big groups suddenly. And then after that two hours, would mysteriously all go their separate ways.
4: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> Crazy teenagers. So after this point, things would get even stranger. Soon people he ran into in town, at the office, or even at Ham Radio Fest that he was a big fan about would just cl- show up and claim to know him even if he'd never even seen them before. Each came with their own plethora of strange stories about the events around Camp Hero. So, November 1984. Nichols is working in the lab at the back of his house when a man named Duncan Cameron shows up with a piece of radio equipment. What did Nichols help with? This wasn't unusual. Nichols was a well-known radio nerd in the area, and it was common for people to drop in with questions. He got to talking, and Duncan reveals that he's a psychic. Nichols tells him about his study he have been working on for the last decade, and Duncan wants to get involved. Duncan showed a surprising aptitude for the work and became the perfect partner for Nichols and his research. Almost too perfect. Which began to make Nichols suspicious. Nichols decided to take him to Camp Hero. Tell Duncan that he wanted to see if he recognized the place. he did. And not just that, he was able to tell Nichols about what each building had been for. Where to find the mess hall, the bulletin board, and a plethora of small details as only someone who had spent an enormous amount of time in the area would know. Duncan was able to expand on the kind of research that had been done there. When they entered the transmitter building, Duncan suddenly entered into a trance and began to spew out information. Nichols shook him out of it and brought him back to his lab where they began to unblock his memories. The more they unlocked, the more Duncan could tell him about the research that had happened in Montauk. And then Duncan blurted out that he had been programmed to come to Nichols, befriend him, kill him, and destroy all his research. Oh. Duncan had, Duncan had no real conscious recollection of this up until that moment swore he would no longer help those that had programmed him to do so.
2: I can't. Oh my god. <sighs>
0: <laughs> so as Nichols continued to work with Duncan, more and more was revealed, including that he'd been involved in the Philadelphia Experiment as well. Part of the crew with his brother Ed. And it wasn't just Duncan remembering things. Nichols began to remember things as well, including his involvement in the Montauk Project. Neither Duncan or Nichols knew what to do with this information. So in July 1986, there, I would do a panel at the U.S. Psychotronics Association, or USPA, conference that was located in Chicago. They would talk about their recovered memories and the experiments of Camp Hero. Their talk caused an uproar, and the word got around fast as they had planned. With their story public, they believed that this would give them a bit of a defense against those who, wanted, who wouldn't want them digging into it. It was after this that they connected with Al Bielik. He heard their talk, and it triggered memories for him as well, and he joined the other two in their hunt for truth.
1: I'll be like, I'll be like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I feel guy. like I've played enough Delta Green to know that if the government <laughs> wants you dead, you'll be dead.
2: That's amazing, Courtney. Oh my god.
1: <laughs> I'm just saying, like, if the government it's wants true. you dead, if they have a, 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 the ability to make <laughs> animals and people gather for two hours every day, you think that you that you poke it around isn't gonna. You're not just gonna be gone. I call bullshit. There's there's reasons for this. So, (laughs) of course there are. Of course there are. Everything's explained. Okay. Grace blessed him. No. So
0: 1989 for Nichols, he had normal (laughs) memories from the period of 1973 to 1983. But his recovery memories told him that he had been working on the Montauk project during that time. Eventually, he and Duncan realized that Nichols had been existing in two separate time tracks. As Nichols puts it as bizarre as it may sound, it was the only sensible explanation under the circumstances. Oh, two time okay. tracks. Sure.
3: Yeah.
0: Nichols could remember years where he'd come home totally exhausted. Was this the toll of slit realities? No. So, 1990, one day Nichols has been constructing a Delta T antenna on his roof of his laptop. As he worked on this antenna, more and more of his memory seemed to recover until one day in early June, he could remember everything. Quote All I could figure was that the Delta T antenna wasn't storing up time flux waves as I was connecting it together.
1: I'm <laughs> oh sorry, God. what? Um...
3: Flux waves, okay. Uh...
0: Science. <laughs> In July 1990, Nichols is laid off, and not long after, all his connections were removed as well. After having worked at Ale for close to 20 years, he no longer had any links to or friends in the company. Peter Moon would then meet Nichols shortly after this, and Nichols would eventually tell Moon about his recovered memories, and the two began to talk about writing a book. But so before we get into the details of the actual Montauk Project, it's important we talk about some precursors. Montauk Project was a combination of several other experiments and studies that happened decades before it. So the first one we're going to talk about is the Philadelphia Experiment. The alleged United States Navy Experiment, also known as Project Rainbow, which was done on August 12, 1943. According to the legend, the destroyer USS Eldridge was made invisible, dematerialized, and teleported from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Norfolk, Virginia, and then back again to the Philadelphia Naval Yard. The experiment allegedly had horrible side effects on the crew of the ship. Some went insane, others developed mysterious illnesses, but others were still said that they've fused to the ship, still alive, but with limbs sealed to the metal. As you can imagine, the Navy decided that this technology was too dangerous and abandoned it. That's what happened. So, a uh, Dr. Von Neumann, uh, Duncan Cameron, and his brother Ed were all involved in this experiment. Yes, the same psychic Duncan that worked on the Monty Project with Nichols. And his brother Ed? What well, was Al Bielick in a previous life? Don't worry, we'll get to
1: that
4: later. Wait, what? Uh, <laughs> okay, but consider maybe this experiment was trying to fuse man and machine to create intelligent <laughs> ships.
3: That <It> wasn't the <laughs> goal. So, Not self-driving ships. Like, he was there, he knew that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, so... And we got the Phoenix Project. In the late 1940s, the U.S. government began a, a weather control project codenamed Phoenix. The concept of technology came from William Reich, Austrian scientist. He's responsible for the discovery of orgone,
2: oh, or energy known as oh. orgasmic
0: or life energy.
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: orgone itself wasn't controversial, but when he started claiming it could cure cancer, it raised some questions to say the least. Project Phoenix wasn't interested in orgone. It was interested in DOR, or Deadly Orgone Radiation. I claimed that DOR was created during violent storms. and believed that this energy could be harnessed, the weather could be controlled. I gave oh. his research to Project Phoenix, and that was the extent of his involvement.
1: God. I hate this. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yep.
2: I fucking love it.
4: It's so... It's so good.
2: It's, it's so good. It's just it's just wild. I feel angry. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: going to get worse. Oh, man. So, Project merges technology with government technology, and the result is what we know today as radio song to monitor weather, which are like weather balloons, which is cool, but the unspoken terrifying implication is that the government knows how to prevent catastrophic weather events and how to create them. Somet- something that apparently Russia has already been doing for
3: years. The,
0: United, the government knows how to stop weather events. Like, Hurricane Katrina? Nope.
3: Okay, no, but like also, the,
1: if if they could create a weather event, then why would we spend billions of dollars invading countries instead of just starving them to death? Because right. we're already terrible. Right. Yeah. That sounds cheaper. Oh, it might be <laughs> cute. Well, we gotta get to the mind control part then,
4: so. I hate people.
0: 1948. <laughs> Phoenix recruits Dr. Von Neumann and his team from the Philadelphia Experiment, seeing an opportunity to blend the technology of both projects. Their goal was to figure out what went wrong with the, quote, human factor. In the 1950s, Brookhaven Labs on Long Island became the project headquarters for Dr. Von Neumann, who was put in charge. The team spent 10 years trying to figure out why humans had trouble with electromagnetic fields that shifted through them at different times and places. They discovered that all humans are born with a time reference point. At conception, a soul is attached to the timeline, And we all start from that point. This point is the basic orientation point that you have to the universe and how it operates. What happens with the Philadelphia experiment was that the people lost their time reference points. And that's why everyone got fucked up. (laughs) So 1967, the the Phoenix Project is completed. And the report has been turned into Congress. Um, The project identified the potential that the technology had to manipulate and change what and how human mind thinks. Congress said no, concerned that if it got into the wrong hands, the technology could be devastating. In 1999, Congress orders the project disbanded. They even saw the potential of their work and thought Congress was denying a huge opportunity, so they reached out to the military. They proposed a world where they could just flip a switch to make their enemies surrender. The military was in. Funding would be required to build a new lab and to perform proper experiments in seclusion. They also needed equipment and personnel from the military. One important piece of equipment was Sage Radar, which the military was more than happy to supply, gifting them the shuttered camp hero to the project with its intact Sage Radar station. This is how Project Phoenix 2 begins, which would later be colloquially known as the Montauk Project by Nichols & Co.
2: Yes.
0: A project like this wasn't something you could just run out of your garage. This would need... This was a multi-billion dollar venture that would need equipment, staff, materials, and the usual staffing amenities for any workplace. Oh, and it had to be top secret, as there was they were directly defying Congress, so no one could know what they were up to. You know, mm-hmm. just designing and testing mind control. <laughs> oh, the military couldn't finance the project as it would draw too much attention, so some significant financing would be required. Quote, the financing is shrouded in mystery, but it appeared to be totally fri- private. I do not have any documentation or evidence for myself, of this financing, but I was told by my Montauk acquaintances that the original money came from the Nazis.
1: Okay, here's the thing. (laughs) The military (laughs) hides spending all the time. That's why a roll of toilet paper costs $10. You're not wrong. (laughs) It's it's not a complicated guy. They've been doing it since, Uh, like,
3: the 30s. (laughs) Anyways, the Nazis. Uh, so
5: there's a whole
0: worry about Nazi gold going missing, but we're not got no time for that. It's the whole thing. though so what you should know is that the Nazi gold did eventually run out, but they had backup funding from the Freemasons and the mob if things got dire.
2: You need to leave.
0: Not
1: the Illuminati. <laughs> I
0: know, right? <laughs> that's, that's later, okay. <laughs> not the Illuminati, there's a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> Theory, it's involved in this, I promise you.
2: Oh, hell.
0: (laughs) From 1970-71, Hero was converted to a proper testing facility. Staff hired, equipment acquired, and set up. This process took about a year. By late 1971, the project was underway. The staff was a mix of military personnel, government employees, and employees supplied by various corporations. Nichols would be one of the latter, joining the project in 1973. Duncan would also join around this time, as well as Bielek. While the original intention of the Montauk project seemed to be mind control and stealth technology for the purpose of military use, the experience performed at Camp Hero seemed to stumble across a myriad of applications with venues for their, with all sorts of venues for the research to go. The city would have dozens of initiatives going by the time that shut down, with many crisscrossing with each other, It makes it really hard to define where one project ended and the other began. The basis of this project was was the discovery that when the stealth radar or rainbow radar was turned on, it seemed to affect the overall mood of anyone in range. By changing the frequency and pulse duration of the radar, they could manipulate the motions of those within range. This is what Nichols referred to as the microwave oven experiments.
1: Is this when they found the brown note?
0: So, (laughs) 1972 and 73, the military, desperate to see what this technology can do, offers up their own people as annoying guinea pigs. Army units were sent to Montauk under the ruse of R&R. Montauk is beautiful, and the outer base had a nice gym, bowling alley, and excellent food and accommodations, allegedly. just didn't mention the mind control experiments in the brochure. With successive local tests, they expanded the range to include the townspeople in Long Island and upstate New York and Connecticut, just to see how far it could go. They had, they had their mind control, but now they need to, to work on the nuance and precision. The nightmarish results of the Philadelphia project always at the forefront of their mind. How could they so- solve that human factor? Human, of course. So they built a chair designed to pick up brainwaves of a psychic sitting in the chair. Combining the psychic's will with the power of the radar technology, this setup would become the linchpin of the whole project and would eventually be known as the Montauk Chair
3: expecting a chair to be a vital part of this. Yes! Wow. (laughs) I'm into it. This is where we see our
0: three big Montauk project components come in. So this is when Nichols is hired for the radio frequencies, Duncan is brought in as a psychic, and Bielik is brought in with his history with the Philadelphia experiment to kind of oversee the whole thing. So getting getting everything up and running was a lot of trial and error. Issues with interference and calibration plagued the project for the next two years, and these issues monopolized the Montauk Chair's team's time. In 1975, the team wasn't having luck overcoming the interference issues, so they went back to the original plans and figured out where they went wrong. Plans were made by the Syrians. Who are the Syrians, you ask? Just an alien race from the Sirius star
1: system. <laughs> Not I was people waiting. from Syria.
2: Oh. <laughs> aliens not yet it's too earthly it's too earthly
1: wait wait so are these (laughs) are these syrians grays or greens or reptilians or no grays are entirely different reptilians are part of the
0: um remember the the orion group okay okay all
5: right we'll get there (laughs) you joke but this is all (laughs) involved oh -oh. yeah oh fuck okay
4: <laughs> <laughs> Everything's okay, connected, like a... Courtney. Everything. Oh, this, I hate it.
5: it.
2: Deep state, new world order. Yep.
0: They could have consulted the original plans, and they found that the coils were connected to crystals instead of ordinary electronics. How could they have overlooked that? Oh. Oh so they put God. a contract out to devise a new chair as part of a secret bid. RCA would win this contract.
2: <laughs> the one with the dog. <laughs>
0: You're now thinking of that old CRT television that was in your parents' basement that hummed whenever you turned it on. Why the hell would RCA be hired to make a futuristic chair of an alien design intended to project psychic powers? Nikola Tesla. Of course. "To (laughs) To get the Montauk chair operating without interference, they had to replicate what the crystal receivers did with the Syrian technology. In the 1930s, Nikola Tesla had designed receivers for RCA under the name of N-Turbo. These coil receivers were perfect for the Montauk chair.
1: Yeah, take that, Edison, you fuck.
0: Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> part of this theory as well is that Nikola Tesla didn't die. So, um, I don't get into oh, that. Yeah. that whole other side. Right. <laughs>
3: oh,
4: boy. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: These coils would create a bit of a force field around the chair, which effectively dealt with the interference they were facing before. By late 1977, everything was now communicating without glitches and with a high degree of fidelity. Putting an image of someone's thoughts was old news. Now they had Duncan concentrating on solid objects, and with sufficient concentration, Duncan could cause a copy of this object to precipitate out of the other and to show up. This duplicate didn't always end up where it was supposed to or when. For example, it may show up in the mess hall four hours later. Needless to say, more fine-tuning was required, but they were on to something. Experiments were performed to try and find the limits of this ability. In one case, Duncan imagined a whole building into the base grounds. Another day in the office. (laughs) Fucking what? It's
5: so good! It's so
0: good! I love it! So, they continue to expand the scope of this project, pushing Duncan further, channeling his powers into different applications. We could spend hours talking about all this, but here's the cliff notes. There's the seeing eye, which Duncan basically could use a personal effect use a chair to see through someone else's eyes, feel, hear, etc., all the things that a person could feel. Um, there are thought implants. Duncan could implant specific thoughts into specific specific people's minds, so he could suddenly make you decide that you want a tuna melt or something. Like, easy. Um, He could move or destroy objects all the way in town. He could drive animals into town or start a crime wave. Yep. Bill states it is important yep. to note that Duncan was in an altered state of consciousness while performing these experiments. Okay.
3: Oh, he was high. I-
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Yeah, You're stripping balls.
0: There's no, there's something else, and it's way
2: worse. Trust me.
1: Uh, Kayla, Kayla, drugs.
2: Yes. (laughs) (sighs) Kayla, I have a question. Kayla, I have a question. Does remote viewing come into this at all? Absolutely. Fuck yes.
0: Don't you know that William Reich worked with Carl Jung, who's the inventor of remote viewing? Fuck yes. I'm so happy right (laughs) now. Oh my god. I know this now. This is in my brain. Yes. Welcome to my brain spot, that's bad. So by 1978, the mind control techniques were fully developed and recorded. Appropriate tapes were made and distributed to different agencies so that they could develop them into something practical. In 1979, it was noticed that every once in a while, Duncan's thoughts would suddenly cease. At first, they thought it was a malfunction, but they later determined that his thoughts had entered into a different time stream. The project team realized that they could potentially use this to create time travel. It was really exciting, so the staff in the project were sent to mandatory conferences with a focus on time and how it functioned. one wants to create time paradoxes. One of the key things they had to learn was something called zero time. Zero time is the great nothing that exists outside of the universes. The empty, timeless nothingness. All, As all human souls have a tether of their time reference point, all universes are connected to a zero point. points coincide but never move. This is a point in space and time that no matter what is consistent. Think of a merry-go-round, with multiple universes being the horses and the center being the zero point. A zero time reference would be vital to unlocking time travel. Thankfully, Tesla had created a zero time reference generator in the twenties. Of course. So yeah, it consisted of an assortment of spinning widgets and rotating wheels. Colliqually, we refer to it as a whirly gig.
4: Whirly gig. Like I'm sorry.
0: Like the little
1: the little spinny thing that we play with as children.
0: I don't know.
3: But it was made by Tesla, so it was fancy. Something, I don't know. Do I'm looking, yeah, no, it's like
1: <laughs> I don't have
0: the I don't have pictures of it, so I couldn't tell you.
1: <laughs> okay. There's a bunch of different kinds of whirling gigs, I guess.
0: I think it's just referring to anything that's like that spinning an object that
1: spins or whirls. It could be a pinwheel, a spinning top, a buzzer, a kinetic garden ornament.
3: What the fuck? I know what whirligig means. <laughs> well, be- I've I had an I- idea of one,
1: but like, did Tesla really make one?
0: He did, supposedly, to figure out
1: okay. what the time reference was.
0: <laughs> Which. How that does that, I can't tell you, but it does. So, essentially, this device would provide a set of coordinates that could be used as a tether. We didn't want people floating around nilly-willy through time. The process went as follows. Duncan would sit in the Montauk chair, clear his mind, and then focus on a window of time from the current date to the desired date. For example, 1990. 1990. This would open a portal nearby that anyone could walk through and lead them to 1990. The door would remain open for as long as Duncan maintained his concentration. Quote, I have been told by those that entered the tunnel that it looked like a spiral similar to science fiction style renditions of vortexes. When outside the tunnel, it looked like you were looking through space. a circular opening through space to a circular but smaller window on the other end. I was considered too valuable for to the technical operation and was not allowed to travel through the portal.
3: Or Nichols could never time travel. He was not allowed. He was too important.
4: They really should have sent him through. <laughs>
3: 1980
0: to 1981. Precision and consistency were the focus of study during these years. Three primary anchor points were created based on the Earth's biorhythm. biorhythms. Don't ask, because it's a thing. 1943, 1963, and 1983. Dates are important. That's all you need to know. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> Once the process was hammered out and could be repeated flawlessly, Camp Hero was vacated until only the key personnel remained. Among these was Beelick, Duncan, and Nichols. The motive was to explore time itself. They strategically scout the past and future, taking note of the circumstances. Through the vortex, they could sample the air, the train, and everything without even entering the portal. For the most part, this seemed safe. The only issue was, if the base lost power while someone was in the tunnel, they would forever become lost in time and space. But shit happens. Don't know if life insurance covered that. (laughs) Quote, it was a routine to create a tunnel, grab somebody off the street, and send them down. Most of the time, these were people that were winos or derelicts whose absence wouldn't create a furor. If they returned, they would make a full report on what they'd encountered. Most of the winos used for the experiment were sobered up for a week before entering the portal. But many didn't make it back. We don't know how many people are still out there floating in time, space, wherever and however. So, with time testing, these experiments became more advanced. They found that TV and radio signals could travel through the portals. So they began to wire up their subjects so they could get still get data, even if their subject never returned. Each subject was escorted through the portals, some more willingly than others. It was during this time that the Montauk Boys Project began.
3: Oh, in the addition Montauk to the Boys Project
0: montauk boys yep okay in addition to the derelicts the researchers also used kids for some reason i'm not sure what exactly the purpose was but there was one kid at montauk who would go out and get other kids and bring them to the project he was like a tractor beam he lived in montauk and would circulate very effectively some kids returned home some didn't the kids chosen were between 10 and 6 or maybe 18 of the oldest and nine of the youngest were just about to reach puberty or had just finished it. They were usually blonde, blue-eyed, tall, and light-skinned. They the Aryan stereotype. To my knowledge, there were no girls in the group. The investigation showed that Montauk had neo-Nazi connections and that the Nazis were still on that Aryan kick. We don't know where the kids went. They were educated in or programmed for whether they came back or not is still a mystery. What information is available is that they sent every raw recruit into the future to 6037 A.D always to the same point to what appeared to be a dead city in ruins. Yeah.
1: Why does this send up red flags of, like, an actual pedophilia ring? Right. Only boys, certain ages, certain body type Yeah. look
0: mm. the was mm. stationally not unlike a dream state. There were no signs of life in the center of the city In the square was a gold horse on a pedestal. The inscriptions on the pedestal and the recruits were sent there to read what they said, and each recruit would re- interpret and report back. We still don't know what the researchers were looking for. They could have been trying to find the same answer from different people, I don't know. They suggested there was technology in the pedestal that they were trying to get somebody to sense or feel what the technology was. Someone else involved in the project has said that the horse was there to test the powers of observation of the recruits. And it also served as a point of reference. Recruits were always asked if they saw anybody in the city. A lot of people were shoved into somewhere into the future, maybe 200 or 300 years ahead. Estimates range from 3 to 10,000 people that were eventually abandoned. We have no idea for what purpose.
3: Yeah, creepy child psychic soldiers. Ugh. All right. Hmm. Nichols and much of the staff were kept at a loop of the attentions of this project. He does
0: not know what they did, but they did do a lot with World War I and World War II, monitoring and taking pictures during this time. They also discovered that they could record Duncan's brainwaves when establishing a portal to create a specific time and place onto tapes. These tapes could then be used to reopen the portals without Duncan having to hang around while they messed with time and space. So, 1981 and 82... technology was used to gain access into the underground areas in the Big Pyramid on the planet Mars. So we're going to talk about Cydonia. Oh my god. In 1972, the Viking 1 and 2 satellites took a bunch of pictures of Mars. Among these images are the famous face and pyramid on Mars. It's a common conspiracy theory that these indicate the remains of a Martian civilization and is commonly known as Cydonia. The Time Scouts had scoured Mars for living inhabitants, and were forced to go back 125,000 years before they could find any. Nichols doesn't know what they found out, and Duncan can no longer recall the details. The thing that Duncan does recall is that they found technology they called the Solar System Defense, which was a technology that seemed to protect our solar system from external forces. The Montauk team disabled it, and retroactively disabled it from 1943 on, and is commonly considered among UFOlogists, that 1943
3: is the beginning of the massive UFO phenomenon today. So they're responsible for UFOs. Okay. Yeah. Oh, There's not much more I can say about Mars at this point, except that the movie Total Recall is a fancily
0: based on some of the events that occurred at the Montauk Project. The way they use the chair in that movie is strikingly
4: similar. Oh, God.
0: The time and space research continued, and countless missions running until August 5th, 1983. August 5th, 1983, they were given the directions to run the transmitter nonstop. They did as they were told, but nothing out of the ordinary occurred until the 12th. Equipment dropped out of sync with its target and instead of locked onto something else. USS Eldridge exactly 40 years prior at the time of the Philadelphia experiment. Nichols is uncertain if this was intentional or if it had been an accident. Through the portal they could see the ship and the 1943 Duncan and his brother Ed. Researchers ensured that 1983 Duncan couldn't see himself to avoid a time paradox. Of course so, na- but natural laws were being violated, and it seemed everyone involved felt uncomfortable. Three colleagues and myself had been privately voicing misgivings about the project over the period of months. We talked about the pitfalls of dealing with time and how this might affect the karma of the planet. We hope the project would truncate itself. Consequently, our little cabal created a contingency program that only Duncan could activate, and it was designed to crash the entire project. someone from the group approached Duncan while he was still in a chair and whispered, The time is now. It would be from this moment that all hell would break loose. Duncan's thoughts shifted, and no one could have anticipated what happened next. Elsewhere on the base, Duncan had manifested a monster from his subconscious. it was big, hairy, hungry, and nasty. It would eat anything it could find, and it smashed everything in sight. Several people saw it, but almost everyone described it as a different beast. It was either 9 feet tall or 30 feet tall, depending on who saw it. I personally believed it was about 9 to 10 in height. It looked strange things to people, and no one was sure about the exact physical constitution of this monster was. No one was in any frame of mind to, to calmly and collectively an- analyze its exact nature.
3: So Bigfoot
1: basically, right? Yeah. Yeah. Also, I want to point out that I think it's really uh interesting that they're more hung up about creating a time paradox and how that's more reprehensible, but stealing Wino's and children oh, yeah. and forcing them to go through a portal where they don't know if they'll make it back or not is is fine.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah, so have the ethics around this whole thing are very questionable. <laughs>
0: Um. So Nichols' supervisor ordered for the generator to be switched off in hopes of stopping this phenomenon. They did nothing, and they needed to find another plan, and fast. The problem needed to be tackled in two ways. One, somebody needed to go through the portal to the Eldridge and turn off the transmitters there in 1943, by smashing if necessary. And two, somebody needed to stop the transmitters in Montauk. Nichols became responsible for the latter. When the off-switch and pulling the cables, disconnecting the power to the base, failed to shut it down, Nichols had to take an acetylene torch to the cables and then hack to the transmitter and the control panel until they finally groaned to a stop. all the lights went off. It was at this point that the beast stopped moving and faded back into the other. The portal closed, and that was the end of that episode. Today, you can still see the torch marks where I cut things apart.
5: Great.
1: (laughs) this is delta green this is a delta green episode and you can't tell me otherwise where do you think delta (laughs) green came from
3: it's inspired by this bullshit
1: oh i'm sure i'm sure
0: those who had gone in 1943 to shut down the the transmitter rescued as many people as they could from the uss eldridge after this power after this power was restored to the base the base quickly emptied as most personnel were rounded up debriefed and brainwashed accordingly we may, and June 1984, a squad of black berets descended on the abandoned base, reportedly ordered to shoot anything that moved. They were followed by a second crew to remove all secret equipment, which was considered too sensitive to leave behind. The next step was to prepare the underground to be sealed. Certain incriminating evidence was removed at this point. I've heard that there was a room with hundreds of skeletons that was cleared out during this evolution. Terrible skeletons.
1: All, all the winos and children.
0: Exactly six months later, a caravan of cement mixers were spotted on the base, and they filled the vast underground areas of the camp here with cement, elevator shafts, stairwells, vents, anything that could lead to the redacted underground operations. Bill says that you can visit the base today, but it's illegal to cross the fence, get inside to the base, and that there are other dangers to consider. In the late 80s, two people who Nichols knows had been part of the Monarch Project had visited the site, and they claimed that they'd been abducted, and don't remember what happened to them. Okay. Oh, who was really behind the Montauk project? There are countless intrigues and scenarios one can envision. Religionists can bring up God and the devil. UFO aficionados can offer a grand scheme of aliens vying for our solar system. Left-wingers will offer explanations concerning the CIA and the secret governments. I believe that all of the above can, can shed light on what actually happened in Montauk. It's also my hope that this book will bring more people out of the woodwork. Which it did.
1: LSD. Oh. <laughs> That's my guess. It's just a lot of LSD.
4: Okay. But so when did when did Montauk supposedly start? Project? Yeah.
3: In the 70s? It was
4: 1971
3: to 1983. Okay. So, my Mushroom. theory is
4: that maybe the Montauk project folks went back in time. They started MK Ultra. Uh-huh. And everyone who's just permanently fucked up because of all of the LSD that they were tested on were like, Oh my god, MK Ultra, Montauk, it's a thing. And then they just started the Montauk project.
0: Another sister projects that I actually ran in tandem. Um they exchanged information <laughs> and notes.
5: So I mean, I, I honestly just MK think a Ultra lot of LSDs. In,
4: in like like decades before, so like maybe it's, it's a, it's birth one,
3: yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, it's all
0: connected.
1: It's, it's no. just LSD and mushrooms, guys. It's just LSD and mushrooms. Giving yeah, a mushroom. much credit to drugs, yes. <laughs> I'm not giving enough You're not giving it drugs are intense, man. Mm-hmm. Not that I've done LSD or mushrooms, but I'm just saying, <laughs> like,
4: it, people weren't it, doing it. drugs, but like they were using. The um, uh, MK Ultra was using psychedelics to try and break people and get them to to basically confess. So that totally tracks. That's right along the line.
0: There's something we're into more detail late, later about the Montag boys about basically how yeah they were mentally broken through torture, drugs, various oh, other huh. things.
3: So yeah, no, it's part of it. Poor babies. Yeah.
0: Yep. 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 Yeah. <sighs> Anyways, since the publication of the book, dozens, if not hundreds, have come forward claiming knowledge about the Montauk project. Some claiming to have been part of the project team, others being test subjects or victims. Nichols, Bielek, and Cameron would go on to tell their story wherever they could be heard, hosting panels at conventions across the country and being interviewed for television and radio programs. Bielek once claimed to have given over 50 interviews on radio and television, and hosting over 50 convention panels. And they were doing this, they were still busy digging into the Montauk project. Nicholson and Cameron in particular would return to the base several times as they both lived nearby, and occasionally Bielek would fly out from Arizona to come on these adventures. three would end up making two videos, The Truth About the Philadelphia Experiment, and The Montauk Tour. VHS copies of these could be ordered through the mail. In 1993, Peter Moon began the Montauk Pulse, a quarterly newsletter that people could could subscribe to to keep up with all the latest discoveries of the main three. Nichols also started hosting Montauk Nights, where once a month he and others would get together and talk about all things Montauk. Nichols would go on to write three more books with Moon at Montauk. By the time of publication, a man named Stuart Swerdlow would come forward, claiming to be one of the Montauk boys. Swerdlow became part of the core crew and even published a book in 1998 detailing his experience called Montauk, The Alien Connection. These four Bela, Cameron, Nichols, and Swerdlow, are considered the source of truth. With a little searching, it's easy to find dozens if not hundreds of other accounts online with whole websites dedicated to his individual tales and investigations. Each rendition plugging in their own flavor, attaching a new handful of conspiracy theories to the legend thing about the Montauk Project is it's been nearly 30 years since the book was published and there's still people coming forward every day to say that they've recovered memories and and were involved in some way or another. It makes the mythos a living, breathing thing that's always changing so you can understand my confusion when I first started to dig into this. So this is theory. How the hell do you prove this? And that's it for this week. Next time we're back with some more Montauk where we get into the nitty gritty of all the possible proof and disproof that I could find and you'll be surprised what we find at the heart of it. As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Human Exception. Have a story you want us to cover, want to tell us that we're wrong, or you just want to say hi, you can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And if you want to get into the fun, you can come join us on our Discord server. A link can be found on our contact page. Also, check out our merch store link it can also be found on our website. Keep on being exceptional, humans, and have a wonderful weekend.